Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm Mary Fran Johnson, Executive Director of CIO Programs here at IDG, and I am delighted to have with me today Julie Auska, who is the CIO and Vice President of IT for the Colorado Community College System. Julie became the CIO in October of 2007, so she's got 12 years in at the job now, and she's responsible, she and her team of about 50 IT folks are responsible for providing enterprise technology capabilities to all 13 of the community colleges across the great state of Colorado. Now that coverage includes 40 campuses, 8,000 employees, and about 137,000 students throughout the centennial state. And the community college system, the largest higher ed provider in the state of Colorado, generates about $6 billion in economic impact through the state's largest system of higher ed. Before her current role, Julie was a general manager for SunGuard's managed services operation, but she was still involved in higher ed. She was overseeing five outsourced IT accounts at different colleges and universities. And then before that, she was a CIO and a vice president for administration and IT with Mercy College in New York. Julie is a longtime men member of EDUCAUSE, which is the nonprofit association of information technology pros in academia and industry. Thanks so much for joining us today, Julie. Well, thank you, Mary Fran. I'm delighted to be here. You got a break from your teachers, and they allowed you to come and spend some time with us today. Yes. Um, I love to start out talking at kind of the 30,000-foot view about a, each CIO I interview. We talk about their industry and the business that they're operating in right now. So when you think about the disruption and the things that are on the minds, especially of IT leaders in higher ed, uh, talk a little bit about that, about the competitive landscape and, you know, the forces in higher ed that are driving the sort of changes that you're dealing with today. Sure, there are lots of changes in higher ed. Um, certainly the for-profits have had an impact. Mm -hmm. um, they've, they've come in and, and started to offer programs or degrees or certificates that are very attuned to workforce development. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's really important in, in higher ed. Not every student necessarily wants to go on and get a two-year or four-year or master's degree. They may be more interested in building skills that mm -hmm. apply to a particular job that they're looking for. So we really need to look at where our students want to go. We need to look at workforce development, What's what are good prospects for jobs within the students' community, mm -hmm. um, doing analysis on why students succeed and what can we do to help them do better as they embark on their academic career. Those are mm -hmm. all critical components for us today. Yeah. Do you think, do the concerns of IT leaders who are working in a community college system, where are the substantive areas where it might be different from the four-year universities or the big state universities? Well, a lot of our students are, are first-generation students, so they, they haven't, no mm -hmm. one in their family may have been to college. Um, they are often older than students. They don't necessarily mm -hmm. come to us right out of high school. They may go off into the workforce for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, then they may decide to come back to college. They may start in 
and then work it's work and life get in the way and they stop out and they come back mm-hmm. you know our students don't typically finish a two-year degree in two years it may take four years it may take five years mm-hmm. so they have a lot of other competing responsibilities so it's not like someone who's been told all their life they're going to go to college and they go off at 18 and they finish when they're 23. Yeah. So it's a bit different for us. Yeah. Now we tend to think when you think about student populations, you tend to think about, especially from a customer demand standpoint, you think about um, very technologically advanced and able, you know, several devices in their book bags and their pockets and all that. But that's not necessarily true for community college populations. It, it isn't, although it's getting more like that. It, you know, mm. 12 years ago, we talked about texting students and having, you know, smartphones, which were very early on. And yeah. students would have to pay for almost every word they received in a text. So yeah. text wasn't a viable alternative. And we all did email. Well, now, you know, no student checks email anymore and they all want to be receive their information via tax. So it's changed. Yeah. Well, and uh, one of the things that we talked about earlier when we were discussing some of these issues, uh, you were talking about the things that were very top of mind for you as the CIO of uh, Colorado Community College System. And it wasn't just student success, it was also access. How, mm-hmm. how does that factor into your thinking? And is that all pretty much technologically driven now when we say access to the educational resources and schedules and all of that? Yes and no. Um, A lot of what we mean by access is that anyone can attend a community college. Um, We are open access. So to start going to school at one of our colleges, you may need to take a placement exam or Um, use some other method of indicating you have a certain level of math and and English skills, Mm -hmm. but uh, you don't don't need an SAT test. You don't necessarily need to, uh, I mean, you apply and you're admitted. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the programs are more selective, of course, but we're really open for anyone, which also means we have to meet the student where they are. If they need... Uh, development courses in math and English, then we provide those. If they need co-curricular support, tutoring, we provide that. So our students don't necessarily come to college prepared for college. So we have to have that process. Okay. the, one, of the, uh, one of the things that we also talked about was that how big workforce development is in just the whole aim that your institutions have and that, that that's really the consumer focus. But yet you don't have the kind of software development budgets that you might see at some of the big tech companies, although there might be expectations along that. So what are the challenges that you run into there? Oh, you know, everyone wants us to be like Facebook and Amazon, and of mm-hmm. course, we we aren't. Our, <clears throat> our online systems are a little more outdated looking and not quite as sexy and mm-hmm. interactive as, as Amazon or Facebook would be. Like, we don't have the capability to say that students like you would like to try this class and things <laughs> like that. Yeah. But, um, you know... We get the work done, so they get registered, they 
add and drop their courses. They can pay their bills online. So we get all the basics taken care of, mm -hmm. probably more akin to what the airlines do with their online systems than what Amazon uh, or Facebook can do. Yes. Well, I want to get into talking about some of the different business and tech initiatives that are very predominant for you. But I also wanted to, before we got to that, I wanted you to explain a little bit more about the governance process, because you mentioned that it's extremely different in the way you're doing it. Running enterprise technology across 13 colleges throughout the state is something, so it's centralized IT, but you don't get to call all the shots. So uh, talk about uh, talk about the governance process. And, and sure. al also, you had a good story about the way CIOs and private companies react when you tell them about how the, the world that you live in with governance, and they look pretty shocked. So let's get into that. Sure. Um, we started the governance process several years ago, as you know, and it really stemmed out of an, an outside analysis that, that was done that said we were really good about how we looked at technology strategically, but yet 80% of the work we did actually was relatively unmanaged and didn't have a full-fledged governance process, looking mm -hmm. at it to sure it aligned with strategy and made sense to be doing the work. Um, because most of it came to us from functional areas. So mm -hmm. the student support areas, the financial support areas, they all had their lists of projects and they got all put on a list and maybe they got addressed and maybe they didn't. Mm -hmm. So. Um, we pulled together a group of vice presidents from our colleges mm -hmm. and formed a governance committee and spent a lot of time thinking about how we would do our work. But um, essentially, projects are submitted, and this committee reviews them and looks at them for their impact on students, their impact on staff or faculty, how broad is the impact that this project might have, does it make sense, does it tied to our strategic plan or not. Mm -hmm. And they also then take these projects out and discuss them in more detail with their peers and other functional groups. One of our biggest problems was that we'd get into a project and then find out that an entire stakeholder group had been ignored or not included in the conversation. And that mm -hmm. results in a lot of rework and starting something over and we honestly don't have time for that yeah. so what we've found is that by going out and having the conversations with the vice presidents of student affairs or vice president of ac academic affairs or mm -hmm. controllers or other people we get much better vetted pro projects and they move along much more smoothly plus we have much broader support for the projects mm -hmm. and it's really improve the number of projects we can get done. They also make the argument themselves that a project should be done. So it isn't IT proposing a project. It's, essentially it's coming really from the, the business users mm -hmm. yeah. that are proposing the project and deciding whether it's worth having and and moving forward. That that has been huge for us. Yes, you said it was the, the difference between things being managed well and things being in a state of chaos. <laughs> so, and are you part of that? Uh, you sit on that governance board? I sit on it and I have two staff members from my project management office that mm -hmm. support that. But we really staff the committee. We do not vote. Oh, okay. Okay. 
That's so great. IT does yeah. not vote. Ah. We, we, we can voice our opinion when we provide details about the impact of a project or what a project might take technically, mm -hmm. uh, but, but we do not make the decision. So that's the part that was a little bit scary is, I mean, I think IT people always like to think that they know best or that they mm -hmm. should be in control. And in this process, we've really let go of that control. Oh. And we're letting the business drive the projects, which I think mm -hmm. is really important. Well, and I think that so many companies in private industries are coming around to that way of working, especially now that more projects are done through agile development, various methodologies involving agile, where the product owner is a business person and the person pushing for the most viable product and presenting to others will be the functional business unit head instead of someone from mm -hmm. IT. Um, but you said still when you talk to other CIOs about it, you find that there are still a lot of control freaks out there. There are. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's our nature, I think. We, we yeah. didn't get into this profession because we wanted to be on the sidelines. But I really believe it, it results in much better projects and much better buy-in. It mm -hmm. isn't you know, what is IT doing these days or why is IT driving this? It's mm -hmm. more, you know, the the registrars or the vice president of student affairs said, you know, this is important for our students. Mm -hmm. This is something we need to have done. And, and that makes much more sense. Yeah, because by the time the actual working part of it gets to you, the, the big decisions about what's important have been made by this governance process. Right, and yeah. we... We also then have the opportunity to involve the business in much more of the details. We we mm. do write very solid project charters that talk about you know what we need to do, but also what the business needs to do in order to make this project be successful. Mm -hmm. What is a what's an example of a project that came out of this process in the last year or two that has been very successful? especially one that maybe would have been a lot more difficult to do in another method. Oh, there's so many, but one of them was, um, we use a, an application for students when they're applying to attend one of our colleges mm -hmm. and we're moving into some selective, um, applica a selective application pro process for programs that require you meet certain requirements before you can be admitted. Okay. And so um, this is really important to our colleges and it came to the governance process, it was approved, um, but we took a little bit different approach after discussing it with governance and invited two of our college recruiting and admissions representatives to participate. Mm -hmm in this project from the very beginning. And they worked with my staff and a consultant from the software vendor to mm -hmm. really put this whole application together. And it was um, such a collaborative effort. Uh. And instead of IT going off and designing this, um, it was built with the, with the consultant and with the users of the software and it We've, it was just so much more successful, and we actually got the project done more quickly mm -hmm. than we would have otherwise. So it was, was everyone this, was pretty happy with it. That's great. Was this the Navigate software product, the one we talked about? Well, this was actually our recruiting one, but that's another okay. good example of a, a student success um, 
software that our colleges are using to help onboard students and help them sort through career choices mm -hmm. and what programs make the best sense for them and help with their academic planning. That's been a system-wide um, implementation that's gone pretty well. We mm -hmm. started with three pilot colleges and then added six more, and now we're finishing up the last four colleges. And this is this comes from the Education Advisory Board, which yeah. and the, uh, what I thought was especially interesting about this Navigate application was that it started out in the healthcare industry and then made the move over to higher ed. And from what I know about higher education and the software around it, it's a very specialized market, and that seemed like a rare, uh, you know, a rare occurrence. But is that happening more now? where software from one industry is making a transition to higher ed, or is this really an outlier? I think to some extent it's more of an outlier um, mm -hmm. because we are kind of a small industry when you look at us across the board that most vendors that develop software for higher ed pretty much only develop software for higher ed. Yeah. But, but every now and then you run into a vendor that kind of moves over from a different industry. Mm -hmm. In that case, I think it was still very specific types of activities that they chose to build in the technology. Okay. Um, one of the things also when we talked earlier, um, and I always think of it as customer expectations, I think it's consumer or student expectations in your world, but I wondered, what you have seen changing the most in the last two to three years, I mean, you've got 12 years in at the job now, um, how are you addressing these, the, the various demands for changes from your consumers, essentially? Well, that, that has been interesting. You know, we used to have colleges full of student labs, and students mm. didn't have their own device, and they came in and they used the labs, and a lot of support, a lot of money and effort when went into making those labs um, work out for the students. And, you know, now everyone has their own device. And so it's really important to have good wireless access for all those devices those students bring. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm still shocked at what students will do on a phone. I'm, I'm <laughs> I still need a keyboard, I think. Um, yeah. But, you know, our, so our applications have to be ready for mobile access. Um, yeah. You know, so we still we still have to support a variety of, of devices, but often it's more of a bring your own device and make sure it can connect mm -hmm. to whatever device anybody has. Although we've had a couple students recently bring up concerns that, they don't always have the money to buy a, a laptop or something like that. And so yeah. they still need the labs because they really can't necessarily write a paper on their phone. There are just some things yeah. that, you know, mobile devices don't lend themselves to. They, they so we need, have to remember that. They um, need keyboards too, moved, Julie. <laughs> yes. We've moved yeah. heavy, heavily into digital textbooks yeah. and open educational resources because they're much lower cost for our students. Mm -hmm. um, that's been a big initiative uh, that we're moving towards. And 
I, you know, anything we can do to lower the cost of attendance is helpful for yeah. our students. Well, and you said, you mentioned also that the self-service component has become something people can't live without, and that's in everything from the ability to register, to pay for your classes, to choose your classes. Um, you even have a, a system now, essentially like an online guidance counselor, to help people mm -hmm. plot out what, what they're doing. Talk a little bit about that. Sure, that was a part of the Navigate project okay. where our students come to us and, and they may not really know what they want to do for their career or what program they want to study. And often they're, you know, they may think they want to go into nursing, but because their aunt was a nurse and it seemed like it was a good career. And then we mm -hmm. get down to the nitty gritty of, well, you know, what do you think about science? Do you like math? You know, do you want to learn biology? And they get wide-eyed and say, um, no, not really. And so <laughs> one of the things... I like the, the uniforms, though. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things the software does is walk them through um, what did they like to do? What are they good at? What mm -hmm. what do they enjoy doing? And, and maybe help steer them to something that they're, you know, they have an aptitude for and yep. they can be successful in. Mm -hmm. um, it also looks at the, the type of money and income they might get from a particular career or occupation so mm -hmm. that that's aligned with, you know, if you're thinking you need to earn $50,000, but you're in a career that's only going to earn $35,000, then maybe that's not a good match. Right, um, right. Or if you need to go on and get a bachelor's or a master's degree. So it, it We'd love students to come in and talk to an advisor, but mm -hmm. they often either don't want to do that or don't have the time to do it. So okay. this automated system kind of walks them through that process. Excellent. We still want mm -hmm. them to talk to an advisor, we hope, yeah. but if they don't, this will help educate them. Yeah, yeah. I think in <clears throat> several walks of life these days, we seem to be seeing almost a desire or a nostalgia for that retro experience of talking to somebody face to face about things instead of doing everything through social media or through our devices or online somewhere. So I imagine the pendulum might be, it's probably good news for guidance counselors that the pendulum well, may be swinging back their way. And one of the things our college guidance counselors have said is that when the student does come in mm -hmm. for, for help, it's a much more informed conversation. So you're yes. not starting way back at, at square one. They've been through the process. So their questions are much better thought out and more actionable Great. that the, the mm -hmm. counselor can work with them on yep. them. And I, that's a huge improvement. Yeah. If they're coming in with real solid questions and, and looking for good answers. Mm -hmm. Well, and that echoes what's happening in other industries, too. Think about going in to buy a car now, how well-equipped consumers are with information about their cars. It's, mm -hmm. it's encouraging to see it happening in all parts of higher ed as well, especially considering all the balls that people are trying to juggle when they're right. managing work and school and home issues and all of that. Let's talk about some of the the top business and technology initiatives that are taking up the majority of your mind share these days. Um, we, you know, you mentioned that data analytics, like you know, as it is everywhere, is very top of mind, and you've made some structural changes to address that. Tell tell me more about that. 
Sure. Um, I, I work very closely with our, our vice chancellor of, of student and academic affairs. Mm -hmm. And our institutional research department reported to him, but the more technical and in-depth reporting department of business intelligence reported to me. And we we thought a lot about it. We we looked at what we needed to accomplish, decided to combine that into one department, which does now report to me. And mm -hmm. we're seeing um, better synergy. We've got the people that really know our data, working with people that understand the concepts of institutional research and mm -hmm. and analysis and things like that. So we're we're hoping to do um, much more along those lines and identify you know, ways that we can help students succeed. One of our key initiatives is um, to ensure that our students have um, equity and success in their courses so mm -hmm. that as we mm -hmm. look at different demographics and students that come to us at different levels of preparedness, are, are we making sure that they can succeed? And okay. you know, it's gonna take data analytics to help us understand what we're doing right, what we can do better, what we need to, mm -hmm. you know, address going forward and yeah. make sure that there's equity and access for all of our students. Have any changes in policies or approaches come out of that yet, or are you still earlier days with this? Well, we're still a little bit early in that, um, although one of the things that we're implementing through our um, vice chancellor of student and academic affairs is rather than just giving a student placement tests, we're looking at multiple measures of understanding a student's knowledge, especially about math and, and writing skills. Mm -hmm. So that's been important. We've also um, implemented co-curricular support, which means rather than taking a, a developmental math course for a semester, you're taking a developmental course right along with your algebra course and oh, seeking, and if you need additional support, that's being provided to you during the same course and you're, you're not slowing down your progress towards your degree, mm -hmm. but hopefully keeping up with everyone else. Okay, excellent. Well, there's, um, there's no technology conversation today that is complete unless you talk about cloud. I think it may be a fed, it may be a federal requirement at this point. Now, um, cloud has not been huge for you. you. I think you told me about 25% of your applications are actually operating in the cloud uh, right now, but you're like everyone else looking at it and strategizing around it. So what is your cloud strategy at this point? Mm -hmm. Um, well, we're developing our cloud strategy. Certainly mm -hmm. for new systems we acquire, we're looking at cloud first. Um, okay. Because why bring it on premise if we don't need to? Mm -hmm. um, so that's been important. And then as we um, we have opportunities to look at moving uh, systems to the cloud, we're, we're, we're evaluating that. And where we can, we certainly are. Our big... Um, 800 pound gorilla of our student ERP system, mm -hmm. I don't think is ready to go to the cloud yet. At least I'm not ready for it to be there. And they um, may not be ready to go there yet either. Right, yeah. we're, we're pretty complex and mm -hmm. um, you know have a lot of processing needs, but we are looking at it, we are evaluating. We did a, a pretty significant uh, 
project of, of building out a disaster recovery business continuity site because mm -hmm. we are in essence the cloud for our 13 colleges and yes. if we go down they go down and that happened a couple of times due to power outages and things like mm -hmm. that that we couldn't control flooding um, so we've got that built but we know it's its next step is probably into the cloud yes. so we you know we keep evaluating and, and learning and as we can move things to the cloud, we, we do. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that whole disaster recovery project. You and I have talked about this before. I think of I think of this as the 2013 incident, you know, where you had you had all kinds of stuff. You had flooding and you know, you basically had your power distribution network failing and it got to the point I think you were you had to shut down everything for two days. Fortunately, mm -hmm. not during class registration time, but it really had your board of directors sitting up and taking notice. Um, so th there was, and then the way you addressed it turned out to be quite innovative from what your various, your key vendors, like, you know, your ERP in the cloud, I think is is from Banner or Blackboard. It's, it's, it's a banner. It's banner. from Lucy. A Lucy, okay. And basically, when you told them what you wanted to do, they told you that you couldn't do that. But then you went ahead and did it. So I, I want you to tell that story because it's a pretty, it's a pretty compelling one. <laughs> sure. Um, when we were pretty naive, I think we knew what we wanted to accomplish, um, but we had some limitations in the tools that we had and the architecture of our ERP at the time. Mm -hmm. um, we did an RFP process and and had a number of vendors coming in and you know none of the solutions were really what we were looking for mm -hmm. and one of the vendors actually was the one that told us you can't you can't do what you want to do and this is why mm -hmm. so we took a number of steps back um we worked pretty heavily with oracle to acquire some tools that would make things possible for what we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, um, we put a lot of effort into moving to the next version of our ERP system, mm -hmm. which was more architecturally compatible with our needs for disaster recovery and business continuity. Mm -hmm. So now we, we are replicating between our site here and our disaster recovery site. Constantly, we can fail it over um, you know, we have about a 30-minute window um, that we can be fully live with all of our systems in our yeah. in our disaster recovery environment instead of, you know, down for two days while we try and figure out how to bring up every piece of hardware and software that we have. So right. it was an amazing learning experience for the staff. <laughs> and, I know it was one of those those that with uh, what's that expression that an experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. <laughs> you got an That's you got a, a big you got a big experience with this one, but it must have made the IT staff feel pretty good because you had all of these, you know, uh, technology vendors saying, "Oh, you can't do that," and then you turn around and did it. And we did, and yeah. they they are they are very pleased. I think. Mm -hmm. Um, we were all shocked at how much we had to learn, but also very pleased that we really were capable of making it all come together the way it needed to. Yeah. Well, and that ability to switch over to the other site, essentially with, it's probably 
more complicated than the flick of a switch. But it's certainly, um, uh, you mentioned that you're looking at the next time you test the system, you may just leave everything running at the DR site. Well, it's a much better data center than we have here. Okay. And, okay. and so, it, you know, it would become our primary site and then the, the, the server rooms we have here would be our secondary site. And I think mm -hmm. as the equipment here starts to age out, yeah. that will start moving things more to the cloud. Okay. Well, and let's talk next about cybersecurity because one has to these days. Um, I love that idea that you had about the keyboards and what you would like to do to get people's attention. Talk about that. <laughs> I know oh, you're sure. joking, but. I, I always tell my staff that I would love to be able to send electrical shocks out to the keyboards to <laughs> tell people, please don't do that. Please don't click on that link again. A very, a very physical sensation of, eh, <laughs> that was a mistake and you shouldn't have opened that. Yes. That would get people's attention. I've never heard yeah. that idea before. That's actually pretty I, cute. I'm sure it violates some law somewhere. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. But you also tell me you have, you've caught some of your own departments inside the system making mistakes like asking students to send in social security numbers. So it's just an ongoing process, isn't it, the education piece? It, it really is. It's an ongoing education process for, you know, faculty and staff because, you know, we, I think as IT professionals, we know not to click on that link. Mm -hmm. But certainly the bad guys be, are becoming more and more sophisticated, mm -hmm. more and more, you know, they they prowl our websites and they pick up people's names and titles. One of the mm -hmm. scams we had were, you know, appearing to come from a college president to a staff member saying, I need you to go buy gift cards or I need you to transfer money. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, they're sending it to the right person and it looks like it's the president and of course it's yes. not. That's very sophisticated too. And, so and they, a lot of businesses have fallen for that. Yeah. They have to be very mm -hmm. aware. So a lot of education, um, a lot of, you know, protecting against getting those emails in in the first place, but really educating people to not fall prey to those mm -hmm. crafty little emails that are too good to be true. Well, I've gotten to the point where I'm so suspicious that I've been regularly deleting emails that I'm not supposed to delete. I've done the, I'll, I'll get an email that is supposedly from the HR department and telling me about something and I'll just delete it. And then I'll find out later that they have to resend it to me because it was real. So I, there's probably a point where you can get a little too paranoid, but, but I, we're, we're probably not there yet in most businesses. Um, I, tell me about, you've got a staff of about 50 uh, that provide the enterprise technology for all those, what, 40 different campuses, as we were talking about. Um, how is How do you have that IT staff structured now, and has it changed significantly in the last couple of years? Have you kind of reorganized around different lines of approach in taking care of this whole system? It, it certainly has changed. Um, the area that the two areas that continue to expand really are the business technology project management area. And, the, mm -hmm. and those staff are mainly project managers and business analysts. Um, 
and they're the ones that are working with all of our functional areas at our colleges and our system office on on the projects mm-hmm. um, and and that area has definitely grown we've we've ramped up the skill sets in that area especially project management and analysis skills because that's where most of our work is these days mm-hmm. And then also the combination of the institutional research and business intelligence. I see that area probably growing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, cybersecurity is another demand area. Um, we didn't used to have a, you know, a main cybersecurity person. Now mm-hmm. we have two. We probably need three if, yes. if we could have them. Um, and, and because of the work we do and because we support the wide area network, all of the phone system for the colleges, the email for the colleges, you know, my staff has to be pretty um, technically skilled on the infrastructure side. Okay. So mm-hmm. we haven't grown that area so much, as, but I've noticed that the, the staff just has to be really attuned in terms of their Cisco certifications and their knowledge of telecommunications Uh, and mm -hmm. infrastructure. We, most of our systems run on Linux. We've added staff in that area just because Mm -hmm. there's that whole middleware component that's needing to be supported these days. And Mm -hmm. so roles are changing. Um, you know, they're more complex my team is always working in, in a project mode rather yeah. than on individual assignments. Right. Is there concern uh, in your among your staff right now that as more things start moving to the cloud, their jobs will inevitably change a lot as well? I think so. I've, I've tried to hire staff, especially <laughs> over the last couple of years, that you know, does have good communication skills, understands um, the planning process, knows how to work with vendors. As we move to the cloud, I see um, we have to manage those vendors. So we need to understand what it is they're doing and make sure they're doing things in our best interests. Mm -hmm. Um, So it will change those skills a bit, but I think they still need to know what it is those vendors are doing. It can't just be you throw it up in the cloud and you don't have to think about yeah. it anymore. Yeah, nobody's you ready to play to trust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have any particular um, strategy or approach you take to a kind of keeping an eye on emerging technologies and uh, things that might be blockchain or AI is all the rage these days, getting you know built into various data analytics products and that sort of things. Um, how is that impacting higher ed for you and how do you keep on top of that stuff? Um, it, for us, it's not impacting us that much. I mm-hmm. certainly stay in touch with my fellow higher ed CIOs, I, I would say there's more of an impact perhaps with artificial intelligence on the, the research institutions, uh, but also paying mm-hmm. attention to what's happening in other industries. You know, we're, we're often the last to find out about new technologies, but mm-hmm. seeing what other people are doing can help inform whether we should be paying attention to certain new technologies. I think artificial intelligence mm-hmm. will have an impact mm-hmm. um, as we look at, you know, start to use that with some of our data analytics and 
and what can what can be done for people and where do they need to um, participate and engage in the software. Yeah. So, do you see potential from a technology like blockchain for keeping track of, I think we, you mentioned student credentialing across different systems. Do you know, is anyone playing with that yet? There are some people playing with that. I think there's a, a community college system in Texas, in Dallas, mm -hmm. that's actually investigating that. So we're, we're watching that. I don't yeah. know that we're we're ready for it yet, or it's it's ready for us, but mm -hmm. it's intriguing because students are starting to pick up credentials here and there and everywhere. And so, you know, should they have to go back to the institution every time they need a transcript or, or a credential or a certificate? And why shouldn't they have possession of that? But yet it has to be secure. You have to make sure it's the the valid credential, the valid transcript, mm -hmm. those kind of things. So I can see that changing over the next several years. Yes. Okay. Well, and the uh, as we get to the, the end of our interview time here, I always like to land on the idea about leadership lessons, things that, and you've had, um, uh, I think the industry average for a CIO tenure is around five and a half years, and you're 12 years in now, so you've more than doubled that there, so you're obviously doing something right, um, and you've also seen the role change a lot in the time that you've been there, so talk a little bit about uh, some of the leadership lessons you have learned along the way and how you find you balance those competing demands on your time and your attention from all those different constituencies that you have to serve. Well, you know, I, I serve the different constituencies <coughs> on, on different levels, and so does my staff. Mm -hmm. So um, I think we've worked hard to to connect everybody at the right level with all our constituencies. So I, for example, deal with my colleagues on the executive staff or the mm -hmm. cabinet, um, but I also work with the college presidents. And I think it's it's very become very important to make sure that whatever you're doing in technology is really representing the organization and what the organization needs to accomplish. So. Mm -hmm. I, I try not to talk a lot about technology, but more what the business needs and yes. how do we make things happen for our students or our faculty and our staff. That's mm -hmm. really what should drive technology decisions. Mm -hmm. And I, I try and work with my staff on understanding that as well, listening to our customers and what do they need and how can we help. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's far more important than any underlying technology that mm -hmm. we, you know, yes, we use technology to make things happen, but we're making it happen because other people need us to make those business um, opportunities occur. Yes, yes. Well, that's a, that actually echoes a lot of what I hear from CIOs across just about every industry. So I think I've kind of developed the belief over time that CIOs, about 80% of the job is extremely similar from one industry to the next. And that connection with the business and the constituents and the students uh, can truly make all the difference. I think that's the most important leadership thing is, is mm -hmm. that you 
you know, you shouldn't be there spouting technology. You should be talking about how you can help move the business forward and meet other people's needs. Yes. I'm here from, we're here from IT and we're here to help. You know, I think that, I think that's getting a lot more real than it ever has been before. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you have a million things going on um, across all those uh, community colleges right now that are all counting on you to do a good job. So I appreciate having your time today, Julie. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. This has been really a pleasure. Great. Excellent. We will talk again soon. And I do hope that we'll see you at our CIO 100 event this August. I know, I know you have big stuff going on with possible litters of puppies arriving, but I'm, I'm still hoping that we'll see you uh, <laughs> that we'll see you in because we're going to be right in your Colorado mountains uh, that third week in August. So yes. we'll, we'll keep in touch. We'll keep in touch on that. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Okay. You're so welcome. Now, if you joined us late for this conversation that I just had with Julie Auska, who is the CIO of the Colorado Community College System, you can watch the full episode later today on CIO.com and also on YouTube, or you can listen to the audio podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And please join me for our next summertime episode. We'll be back next Monday, July 1st at 11 a.m. Eastern when I'll be talking with Upender Panda, who is the CIO of Unisys Corporation. And we'd also recommend that you subscribe to our new YouTube channel, which is called IDG Tech Talk, where you can find all the previous episodes of our CIO Leadership Live. Thanks so much for joining us today, and I hope you'll be with us again next week as well. Take care.